See, royal families tend to acquire power and then they lose the ability to relate. And I mean relate to one another, like to other royals, like to their brother, to their sister. I think it's a spiritual law of nature or something that the more power and money one requires, the harder it becomes to keep human relationships. Well, hello again. This is Watar. Why are we talking about rabbits? And, well, it's good to be with you again another week in 2022. This is the podcast where we talk about heavy things lightly. Yeah, philosophy, theology, history, lots of years immersed in various cultures. That's what we do at First Things. And this pod is an attempt to just see where we are so that we can learn things together, learn about first things, but also, I don't know, learn about culture as it moves all about us, which it is. And so let's see if we can do it today using this idea. Are you sure you want to be the king of your castle? I'm Watar. So... When I worked in Haiti, one of the places I've been blessed to be able to spend time without electricity and without running water was in a place called Haiti. If you've been there, you speak Creole. How are you doing? I hope you're good. Um, ça va bien. <laughs> no. Mpali Creole, mkapa pali Creole. Si vous voulez pali Creole like moi. But I'll forget as we go. I'm getting old. But I worked in Haiti. I took my family there. Uh, we were working at a school. I worked for uh, the Orthodox Church there. You could call us missionaries if you want. Although that term has its own perils. It's a perilous term, 2022. But... When I worked there, I saw something quite interesting that successful people did, successful Haitians. Um, there was this cultural thing they did. It was almost, it was like a real-life meme. People built castles when they made money, usually up in a place called Petionville. Now, not everybody did this, but there was a trend. This is in the early 2000s. Where people went off to the States often, but wherever they were, then they were making money. They would come back and build their castle. Like, I'm talking Tourette's. <laughs> well, no, I'm talking turrets. <laughs> Andrew, that was Tourette's that I just had. But, you know, like a gun turret. But, like in the medieval way, like a round circular turret. like a Like a castle turret. And then they would have, I don't know, these high-vaunted ceilings. It looked like a castle when you're driving around. Some even had moats. That's fact. And seeing that, I just couldn't shake this thought that it, these cats are literally like becoming kings of their castle. Yeah. Like, what an old-world concept to set out to become a type of king a prince, to become royalty. Yeah, and I thought about that a lot. And now that this podcast is rolling, I thought it was a nice old world concept to make 
make sense of in this new world. Yeah. In this postmodern new world. The heck is going on with this? So I think in a phrase, King of Your Castle, by the way, King of Your Castle is not a term you would find in the Middle Ages. The King of the Castle is a new world invention. It's not clear where it comes from, but it's definitely being used in some of the early American writings of pioneers. It's also being referenced by various founding fathers to become a king in your castle. James Madison writes, to guard a man's house as if it was his castle, to pay public and enforce private debts with the most exact faith, right, is akin to a man building protection for his conscience. And so to invade a man's house, he's making an allegory, is like invading a man's conscience. And to invade a man's conscience is to invade a man's castle. So there's an elevation of the idea of castle here is important. But what's really important in that phrase is that James Madison is saying something about your conscience and how an individual's conscience is really important, like a castle. Think about the Fourth Amendment, right? There's this, a man's house is his castle maxim, and it's deeply embedded in American law, American jurisprudence. You can see that there's this egalitarian spirit in the Fourth Amendment, right? Protection for people in their homes and their property against unreasonable searches and seizures by the government. I mean... In 11th century England, you would never roll into Edward's castle and start seizing, seizing things. You couldn't do that, even if you were in the military, even if you were in the army or the police, if you were a knight. You could have never do that to a royal castle, to a duke's castle. Come on. So you see the Fourth Amendment's doing something like protecting your home in the wave even royalty was protected in the Middle Ages, in the Western Middle Ages. So there's protection. There's something sacred about a man or a woman, and really men at this point, taking their families into their homes, right? And in the West now, you have this whole idea of home ownership is really important. In fact, I was taught in my era, I won't say how old I am, 55, in my era growing up, the whole point was to own a house. If you're a millennial out there, is that still a thing? To own a house was to be like come of age or something. It was the point. To get your castle and protect your family within, that was the point. But just so you know, <laughs> that's not the way it worked in the Middle Ages. There wasn't the notion you were going to get a castle one day. There wasn't that opportunity. There wasn't that expectation. You had a house. You definitely protect your family within the house, but the house was always on the land of the royalty. Well, very likely, anyway. There were alternatives to that. Knights lived a little differently. But the point being is, is you wouldn't leave. I can't wait to own my castle one day, my love. I'm working hard. I've done extra cucumber planting so that I can achieve a turret and therefore get rid of my Tourette's. 
which would allow me to be a more beloved man in society. I'm upward mobile. That's not, no, that's not happening. So, king of your castle becomes a very American revolutionary thing to own and do as you wish, as if you were a royal. In other words, that's what the whole movement was about. To acquire dignity for those without the blood called royal. And if you grew up when I did, and if you grew up today, and if you grew up at any time, really, in America after, say, 19, I don't know, 50, there was an expectation that a house would bring you happiness. A house would give you the stuff a man needs to say, I made it. But here's the rub. Being a king or queen in history, you know, being that person or that family has almost zero correlation with happiness. Exhibit 1A. Meet the Windsors. Yeah. The royal family in England even today. They're a fun crew. You've got Prince Charles, who had an affair, then married his wife Camilla, Parker Bowles, who was basically ostracized. Then you've got Prince Harry wearing a Nazi outfit, and apparently they're all racist. I don't know. You've got spoiled millennial Duchess Meghan Markle and Prince Harry <laughs> denouncing their Windsorness. And then, of course, good old Jeffrey Epstein's best pal, Prince Philip, who went on plane trips to islands where underage girls were, yeah, doing stuff. Yeah, the Windsors. I guess you could call it happiness to be driven around in cars and stared at all day long. I don't know. Here's another one. How about the Ptolemy family around the time of Christ? You might know them as the Cleopatra family. Cleopatra, that's right. The queen. Yeah. The one who killed her younger brother. Oh, and then also killed her other younger brother. Yeah. The one who then ran off and married a Greek so that she could own more land. You know that one? Yeah, Cleopatra. She was like a poisonous villain. The Ptolemies would have been a great Thanksgiving hang because something was going to happen. Somebody was going to put a fist through a wall. Oh, yeah. What about the Arged family? a.k.a. the family given to us by Philip II of Macedon, or in other words, Alexander the Great's father. They're funny. Um, Olympias, Alexander's mother, it's pretty clear that she engineered the assassination of Alexander's dad in 336 using the anger of a bodyguard who used to be her husband's lover, and the bodyguard was mad because one of his other lovers had been angered to a point of depression when Philip the King wouldn't continue to sleep with that particular bodyguard. So one bodyguard killed the king in order to be with the other bodyguard who he couldn't be with because he committed suicide. Yikes. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's... 
really possible also that Alexander, growing up in that family, learned how to do that stuff because he apparently had three wives and also was boyfriend with a male Persian dancer. I mean, this stuff writes itself. That's the old Argid family. They're fun. What about Latin America? How about the Atahualpa and Oscar family? They're fun, too. Two different moms here in this Inca ruler crew. These are Incas. Um, lots of moms going on with lots of concubines. That tends to happen in royal families, by the way. You see a lot of cheating going on. Oh, uh, this thing didn't work out too well out of WAPA at one point, kills one of Huasker's generals and then makes a drinking mug out of the general's skull, which really irritates Huascar. And then I guess Huascar ends up trying to sell out out of WAPA when the Spanish show up. So the Spanish capture Atahualpa, and then his last words are, before he gets killed, is, please execute my brother. <laughs> There's a cool fam. There's a royal family. There's a king of his castle. There's two kings, actually, in that story. And then what about in Russia, good old Russia, with the Rurik, ru ru the ruling family that passed down from Vladimir? I won't even tell you about Vladimir's family. Forget about it the ones who founded Russia, but man, you just go about, I don't know, a lot of generations later, you can see the Rurik, the rulers of Russia. Well, there's their old Ivan the Terrible, and then the Romanovs come along, and you get Peter the Great. Peter the Great. Would you like to be like Peter, the guy who is great? Well, if you do, you can end up doing a few things, like having three wives, and having them all die of poison. What? Oh, sorry. Sorry, that was Ivan, his ancestors' wives. They all died of poison, but he didn't do it. It appears that someone else in his aristocratic family was poisoning his wife so he wouldn't have a child. And Peter, who comes a little bit later in the same family, well, Peter tries to kill his own son three times, including putting him on a torture rack at least twice. What? Yeah. Yeah. And then he jailed his sisters and had some drinking duels and outdrank at least two people to the point of death, including a duke who apparently got caught up in his drinking games. Yeah. Oh, the duke was married to his niece, who also died. Mysteriously. <laughs> Guys, I don't know if you want to be a royal family. I mean, I didn't even get to any of the Caesars. I mean, we can go generation after generation for about 150 years to these barrack emperors in Rome, and there's not one family you would like to be a part of. I guarantee it. I'm not even talking be a part of their extended family because uneasy is the head, okay? Let me put it this way. These families are highly dysfunctional. Like, to a point of confusion. But yet, somehow, to be a king of your castle, to move toward owning your own thing, to become like the royal is somehow good. Because it implies happiness. Interesting. See, royal families tend to acquire power, and then they 
lose the ability to relate. And I mean relate to one another, like to other royals, like to their brother, to their sister. I think it's a spiritual law of nature or something that the more power and money one requires, the harder it becomes to keep human relationships. Suspicion and contempt creep in, man. Derision and fatigue take over. You can see this just... I don't know, pick a, pick a spot right now and take a trip there to one of these like coastal cities where people have done very well and have loaded up their cash and bought their boats or whatever. Go to, go to Miami. Go to that, that island. Star Island between South Beach and the city. See how those families are making out. Now, look, it's not everybody. We know this already. It's not everybody, but man, there's some sort of physics there. And one way I know this is true is through experience, because I've been royalty. Now, I know you're asking, then why are you always begging for money for first things? Good question. Andrew, it's a fair question if someone were to ask that. Well, I have been royalty, and the reason I've been royalty is because of the way race works in 2022. And whenever I've gone overseas, right, and shown up in, I don't know, anything except maybe a local bache, a local pickup truck. And even then, it's still the same. And it's the same for all of our folks, men and women overseas who work for First Things. You get this weird, weird royal reception. It doesn't almost matter if you're eating local food with your hands and living in a mud hut. You get treated a certain way by everybody. Now, here's what I, I don't, I'm just telling you, it's not fun. Everyone sees us as wealthy, even when we don't have two pennies to rub together on purpose. That's part of our mission. And I'm telling you, when this happens for months and months, what happens is you become weary. You want to sequester yourself. You want to get away from other people, especially those people. You feel it? And if you're in the field, if you're one of my guys listening right now, you know what I'm talking about. You want to get away from them people. Now, you don't have much money than they do, but you have this characteristic, this type of separateness, a type of royalty. And man, do you want to stay away from people who aren't like that? Because it's hard to share, right? It's hard to have the proper royal reaction. It's a lot of pressure. It's inertia. And you start to feel a desire in yourself to build a moat around yourself to keep you away from other people. Yeah. And if, I don't know, you feel like what I'm saying might be true, this temptation to get a moat, to get free, and to close yourself off, it is the perfect description of suburban America. Come on, man. You educate yourself, you acquire stuff, then you sequester yourself. Maybe put a gate around yourself. Get with the people who understand your success and then gate yourself. So you can have proper conversations that don't put a lot of pressure on you to have to explain to everybody who you are. This is a very normal thing, but I'm telling you, it is the thing that is deeply embedded in this phrase, king of your castle. Free to do and associate with who you want. I'm telling you, 
When you get there, you can just get your little bungee jumping club and you're just happy. It implies happiness. The American dream implies happiness. But there's this other problem. It also implies this kind of dysfunction. Sorry. It does. I mean, I think you can argue that we've won the race. Our democratic capitalist experiment has done well in producing like 100 million royal families. Especially if you walk around the world with us and first things, you'll see you're a royal. Right? You just got to try not to be, but it's hard. So if you take 100 100 million royal families taken together, we've created like the royal country. The problem is, is like all these great families in the past, they disintegrate. Not unlike the Romanovs or the Windsors, we are collapsing under the weight of our wealth dysfunction. We're becoming something like petulant royals whose internal logic is unquestioned because we're within the walls. Yeah. We can't comprehend life outside of the walls very well. We like to think of ourselves as middle class, but in the global world, we have gotten rid of the serfs. But they're out there and they're sitting in silent judgment. Yeah. I'm talking about the Rastas in Miami with three jobs working their brains out. They see. The rickshaw drivers in dusty Orthodox Ethiopia, they see. Right? The simple wheat farming family in the Dakotas, the factory workers in Southeast Asia. Yeah. They're all the people I saw in New York this weekend when I went to go through a KP. The people working at 4 a.m. in like two degree weather, delivering and fixing trucks. I'm telling you, those cats delivering sushi. So at 4 a.m., fresh off some boat from like, Oceania, (laughs) right? So that the castles of Manhattan can have their overflowing banquet at at lunchtime in Midtown. The global economy has produced lots and lots of princes and princesses, but sadly, the royal family physics still apply. At least it feels this way to me. It feels this way. This is not a... You can't follow the science on this show. Because it ain't science. And this ain't no anti-capitalist tome. I'm serious. It's not. It's more like a long-winded reflection on something like the physics of royalty. Royalty is all I'm saying. Royalty is not synonymous with happiness. In fact, it's... I think it's the opposite And any culture that doesn't tell the story of royalty correctly, um, think every Disney movie most almost ever made. Just think Disney. A culture or a crew that doesn't tell the royalty story correctly, I think they prepare themselves for an uncomfortable slide toward the triad of greed, power, and vanity. It's the hump on the camel. Right? When Christ says, yeah, yeah, being rich, well, it's sort of like, you know, a camel getting through the eye of the needle. 
And if you're going like this, a camel can't go through the eye of a sewing needle. Correct. But that's not even what he's talking about. He's talking about a camel who's trying to get the eye of the needle, which was a passageway from the Far East through into the Middle East and then into Jerusalem eventually. Because the camel's too big and it has a hump. The, hamel, the camel's nature has overcome its transportative nature. Its hump is too big to be a proper transport for whatever it's carrying. It can't get through the eye of the needle and get to the other side because it has a hump. And that's the physics I'm talking about. People in search of wealth all day long, people who are trying to get their castle built before they die, they acquire a hump. They acquire a way of thinking. They acquire a type of ontology, a way of being. I'm one of them. I think most of us in the West are. And when they acquire that way of being, it's impossible for them to get through the hard spots called the spiritual life. It's difficult. So I guess the point of all this is to realize that the old world notion of kings and castles also demands a type of willingness to be a serf. See, serfs make kings possible. Kings, good ones, true ones, make serfdom salvific. When a society aims to create a selfless society, they're doing something fantastic. Indeed. Right? They're doing something amazing. But when a society aims to create a society without serfs, without serfs, I think they're creating a fantasy. It's not real. There's no such place. Such a society, such a utopia, it literally aims to tell a story that imagines everyone can become royalty. And that means if you aren't royalty, oh, if you're a serf, if you're delivering sushi at 4 a.m. in Manhattan with giant, fat, freezing hands, if that's you, well, you just don't have any worth because you haven't gotten your castle. You're something like still on the way up, something like still not quite there. You're something like a serf. But the problem is there's no kings to honor you. There's just you failing to be us. There's a divide. But you know, it still doesn't cancel out the fact that America produces goods that make people happy. And here's the key word, temporarily. And I think in the end, the temporary nature of our happiness is what's causing what we see today, looking around. We're seeing people who don't know what to do in order to become more profoundly happy. And I don't know, maybe this little podcast helps with some of that. King of your castle, I just wonder what your castle is and what it looks like and how you're doing with it. And if it feels like I'm trying to make you feel bad, no, <laughs> believe me, I feel bad already. It's not about that. It's just a review of this historical notion of moving from a society where there was place 
and people knew it, to a society where there is no place. Yet we remain judgmental. It's very fascinating. Peace out. This is the end of King of Your Castle. It's February. It's going to get warm soon. And when it does, I hope to see you all at our restaurant opening soon in Greenville. Until then, and until next week, got a great interview coming up with some guys who do some amazing things overseas in terms of um, small project development, but they're philosophers. And I can't wait to shake this tree about what it means to do service overseas. Look for that next week on Watar. Shemi Skagi Marjo, so that means to you the victory, often said at the cable table in Georgia. That's our show for today. Watar is brought to you by the creators of First Things Foundation, a nonprofit that lives and works in some of the world's most impoverished places, immersing in order to create momentum for local change makers, folks we call impresarios. We try to, I don't know, get behind them and push so that they, like us, may fully realize our humanity. Share Watar with a friend. Hit us up with solid review on iTunes and everywhere you get your podcast. Your love for us allows us to go and serve others. Knock bomb these. Hasta luego, cambufo, and peace out.